0: encourage you to open to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, today we're going to read verses 28 through 36 and as you turn there I would just say, you know, as always the Lord's timing is perfect but there's, um, uh, there's very little, uh, very few passages that I could think that would be better to, to preach as we approach a Reformation Day than the passages that we've been on the past few weeks. Uh, you know Luther and Calvin and all those men that their focus always was the glory of God that that was the desire of their hearts was to glorify God whether it was in the church whether it was in their word or in their deed uh, and today here we get a glimpse a glimpse of the glory of our Savior last week we saw the, the high demands that he, he put on our life but today we, we get to see who he truly is and so uh, it's, a, it's a joy. It's a joy to be able to, to preach this particular passage on this particular day. And so let's, let's read this together, beginning in chapter 9 and verse 28. It says Now, about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your holy and inerrant word, Father, we pray that you would, as you did here for Peter and James and John, that you would show us the glory of Jesus. Show us who he is. Help us to see uh, the truth, the truth of who it is that we have come to worship today so that we might glorify him more. We might learn to bow before him with, with trust, Lord, that we might learn the hope, the hope that is ours through this great Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it worth it? Well, recently, uh, against my better judgment, I decided that I would start getting up before work to go running. Now look, you have heard me stand in this pulpit many, many times and declare unequivocally how much I despise running, And, and that is a truthful statement, but I figured, you know, given my age and given my recently found high cholesterol, that it would probably be a good idea to at least try to do something, right, to try to run a little bit. Well, guess what? It was a terrible idea terrible it turns out I was completely wrong you know it was in fact truthfully from the time that that I would wake up to the point where my feet hit my driveway after I was done the, the one question that was just rolling around in my mind was one what am I doing and two is this worth it Is this really worth having to get up? Is this worth the anguish, the sacrifice? Yes, I knew it would improve my physical and mental health. I knew that that I would appreciate being in shape. I knew that it it would even allow me to continue to dominate generations of New Albany Presbyterian youth and all things athletics. I knew it was a possibility. But the answer definitively and unequivocally was no, it was not worth it. It It's just not. So after about a month, I quit. I just stopped. So now I begin there this morning not to discourage you from running because I know some of you are just starting, trying to get started with that. I know there's a few who are trying to get a group going to to run. So I'm not trying to discourage that. But, But I ask it. I begin there. Because that question of, is it worth it, is one that we must all wrestle with. It's one that we wrestle with every day, right? No matter the decisions we make, we we have to say, all right, is this going to be worth our time? Is this going to be worth our our devotion, our affections? Is it going to be worth the money that it's going to cost us? Whatever it is, we have to wrestle with that question. And particularly, after last week's text... I think that may be the question that is on our hearts and minds with regard to Jesus here. Certainly that had to have been the question that was on the minds of the disciples after they've heard what Jesus has said, right? Remember, these are men who had given up their jobs and their families and their homes to follow Christ. And now after all of their hopes, all of the the dreams that they had for him have been confirmed back in Peter's great confession, this is... The Christ. After all of that, it seems that Jesus has only been kind of throwing cold water on the situation, right? In verses 21 and 22, he predicts his death. He says, yes, this is true, but I'm going to go and I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer, okay? Then, last week, we saw in verses 23 through 27, how he gives them these incredible demands. They've given up so much, and now he calls them to even more. He says, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. In other words, they must be willing to give up everything, even their very lives, for the sake of Jesus and for his glory. We said last week that Jesus is not after only part of his followers, the part that we're willing to give. He doesn't intend to rule over only a portion of our lives. We saw that he demands everything. He demands his intentions are total; they are all encompassing, and so he calls his people to follow him even unto death. Physical, maybe these for these men it was physical death, but for all of us, a spiritual death. Right? We said Galatians two twenty. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. That's the reality of this Christian walk. Now, knowing those demands, you have to believe that the disciples truly began to weigh the cost of what they were about to do. They truly began to weigh the cost of following this Jesus. And the question that had to be on their mind was the same question that was on my mind as I ran around our neighborhood. Is this... Or actually, in their case, is he really worth it? Is he worth all that we're about to have to give up, our comfort? Is he worth that short-term, long-term desires that we're going to have to give up? Is he worth sacrificing for? What if that sacrifice is lifelong? What if it never stops? Is he worth that? What if the hardship, what if it leads to death, a horrible death? Is he really worth the self-denial is he worth the daily cross bearing friends those are the questions that they had to consider those are the questions they had to weigh and those are the questions that are before us today now before you answer it because I know we've all been trained to, to jump up and say yes oh yes he's worth it I really want you to consider what we saw last week I want you to keep in mind The cost that he's given us here, right? We've just reviewed it, so we won't review it again. But remember the cost. But today, I also want you to see, and Jesus wants you to see, the Father wants you to see a clear picture of who it is that is making those demands on your life. Yes, they are incredible. But here, as we tried to say at the end last week, God's word does it far better for us. He shows us definitively and unequivocally who this Jesus is. Who is the one that's calling us to sacrifice? And what we're going to see is that yes, without a doubt, he is worth it. And so let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is the glory of Christ. We, we won't beat around the bush. We won't tiptoe around it. We're going to jump right in. Immediately, we see the glory of Jesus. And you see it there in verses 28 through 31. It says, Now, about eight days after these things, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, look, I have not brought this out, and we don't have time to do it today. But it's worth noting here that at every moment, every time we see Jesus about to make a big decision, a big portion of his ministry, anything that's going on in his life, what is he doing? He's praying. You know, whether it was Peter's confession, whether it was in the wilderness when he was being tempted later in his life in Gethsemane everywhere he prays. He is concerned with that relationship, that intimacy with the Father, and we see that clearly here. But as he begins to pray, something amazing happens. Jesus begins to to change. He begins to transform. His glory comes through in its full force, and we see it in two ways. First, you see it in the physical change or the transfiguration itself. Notice what Luke says there. It says that his face was altered, that his clothing became dazzling white or literally like a bright flash of lightning. Matthew, in his account of this, he says that his face shone like the sun. Now, truly, those are wonderful descriptions, but you have to imagine that they are just grasping at straws at this point that what they actually saw there was far more glorious than any words could actually put, could actually describe for us, right? This was no beam of sunlight shining down. This was not this hot spotlight that shines down right here on me. No, this was light coming from Jesus. This was his glory radiating from him out into the world for a moment. they Physically see the glory of their Savior. They see the human nature peeled back, as it were, to the reality that stands behind it all. They see Jesus. Now, this is the most obvious way they saw the glory. And it, it's hard to see that they could see past that, right? This is such an amazing scene, one that we would love to have been a part of. that it's hard to believe that they could see anything else. But there's a second way you see Jesus' glory here. And it may be even more telling to us. And it's in these unexpected guests that, that show up alongside it. You see there in verse 30 that Mo, Moses and Elijah that they come on the scene at this time as well. And there's a lot going on here. We're going to try to kind of unpack it a little bit. But the overall message, the point that, that Luke is trying to give us, what we need to keep in our minds, is the same point that the author of Hebrews was trying to make over and over and over again to us. It's that Jesus is greater. It's that he is the fullness of all that has come in the past, all that, all that happened in the Old Testament. It is now coming to a head here in this person. Remember, back in verse 19, Jesus goes and he says, who do these people say that I am? They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah and some say you're a prophet from of old. But what is clear here? He's not any one of those people, right? Here is Elijah, there on the scene. Here is Moses, the greatest of them all. They're on the scene Jesus is not them. He is something different, something separate. But what is also clear here is not only is he his own person, he is also far greater than either of these who are on the scene. Look at it there. What, What is it that they've come to talk about? It's not their own exploits. Moses is not here to talk about the Red Sea. He's not here to talk about the plagues. He's not here to talk about the Exodus per se, Elijah is not here to talk about raising widows or raining down fire from heaven. They're here to talk about Jesus' departure. They're here to talk about what is to come. They are concerned, like the angels in heaven, to discuss what Jesus is about to do. Why? Why? Because they know that all of their great deeds, all of their wonders in the Old Testament, all of history that it is actually pointing to this moment. You see, this conversation that we get to be privy of, and Peter's going to get this wrong, but the conversation that, that we see here is not a conversation between equals, between equal parties. This is a conversation between the Creator and His creatures. This is a conversation between those who stood as a shadow of the truth with the fulfillment of it. This is a conversation between men and their Lord. Again, Hebrews. In in the old times, God spoke in various ways, in various manners, through the prophets. But now he has spoken through his son, who in chapter 2 of Hebrews is greater than Moses. Who throughout the book is greater than the prophets. Who in chapter 11, that great hall of faith, all of the great men and women of the Old Testament. Who were they looking to? They were looking to this one who was standing here before them in all of his glory, transfigured. Now this point is driven home by that little word, departure. I know most of the time we we don't like to have to hear about Greek words and all of that, but this one, this may be the, the key of the whole passage. That word departure in Greek is actually the word exodus. It's the the Greek word that is used for Exodus. Now, think about that. Moses is standing there. Think about for Peter and James and John what would immediately have began to come to their mind. They would have thought, well, maybe not in that moment because the glory of God is there. That's a lot to take in. But as they thought back on it, what would they have began to think about? Their forefathers in slavery. They would have thought about the power of God in the plagues and in the Red Sea. They would have thought about that Passover lamb whose blood was on the doorpost who caused the angel of death to go over the houses. They would have thought about the complete victory that God brought to his people there in Egypt. And now, now they would not think of it only in terms of what Moses had done. But now they would look to something more. Now they would look to something greater. Moses came to talk about an exodus. But it was not his own. He came to talk about Jesus' exodus. What he was coming to do. And so now for Peter and James and John, that term, that idea of being freed from bondage, of redemption, is taking on a whole new life. They don't see it in all of its fullness yet. One day they will. And they're going to talk about Peter, and 2 Peter is going to talk about this moment, this moment of transfiguration. But for now, he is putting them in that frame of mind. Jesus is bringing a great exodus. And so we see here his true glory. We see the glory of Jesus. Secondly, in this passage, and more briefly, I want you to see the folly of the disciples. And you see it in 32 and 33, and again, you see it there in two ways. First, in verse 32, you know, what had they gone to the mountain to do? That They had gone to pray, and is so often the case, what happens to the disciples while they're there? Well, in verse 32, it says that they become heavy with sleep, right? Uh, One commentator says that, that if there was one thing the disciples were good at, and it may be the only thing they were good at, it was their extraordinary ability to slumber, especially when it was time to pray. Now, again, we could rightly have a whole lesson on prayer just from that verse. But what I simply want you to notice here this morning is the ease with which these men check out, the ease with which they know what Jesus has called them to do, but then their own desires, their own needs creep in. And they're unable to do it. Friends, this is the same issue that that every single one of us face, right? These men are the inner circle. They have been hand-chosen by Jesus to come with him to experience this thing. And they sleep. And all of us, we do the same. We know what God demands of our lives. It's clear. He, He cannot put it any more clearly than he has. And yet so often, like these men, we find ourselves asleep. We find ourselves checked out. But notice, secondly, that their sleep, it doesn't last long, does it? And when, they, when this great scene happens, when Moses and Elijah, when they show up, not surprisingly, Peter, James, and John, they wake up, and it seems that at least for Peter, uh, he doesn't want this moment to end. There in verse 33, he says, All right, Lord, let me build three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, and we're going to stay here and we're going to experience this for as long as we can. But notice what Luke says, He says, he says all of these things not knowing what he was saying. Now, I admit to you that that I've struggled this week to to come to terms with just exactly what it is that Peter did wrong here. I think for any one of us, seeing what he was seeing, experiencing what he experienced, we would want it to last. We would want to stay there in the presence of the Lord, in his glory. So what is it that, that Peter has done wrong? Well, again, I think it's twofold. First, You know, it seems that he's granting an equality here to these three men that we've already seen is inappropriate, right? He says, look, I'm going to build all of you a place of honor, a tent or a tabernacle. I'm going to build you these three places, and they're all equal places. And we've already said that that what we have here is not equals. We have God Almighty, and we have his creatures. Now, prophets to be sure, great prophets, great men but they are not Jesus. So it seems that that Peter assumes that maybe we need to put these folks on par here, and they're not on par. But secondly, and more importantly, I think Peter's, um, what what he does wrong is that his desire is to try to hold on to that glory. And again, it's not necessarily a bad desire. But he wants to hold on to it when Christ still has Jerusalem, when he still has the cross before him, when his time is not yet full. In other words, consciously or not, Peter here is attempting to delay the plans of God. He's attempting to to delay Jesus from getting where he needs to be. It's very similar to what happens in uh, Matthew's account of Peter's confession. When he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus tells him that he's going to die, and what does Peter do? Well, he pulls him aside and he says, Lord, that's not going to happen. You, I may die, but you're not going anywhere. You can't talk like this. And what does Jesus immediately do? He says, well, get behind me, Satan. Because what Peter was trying to keep him from doing was what the, the Lord had planned for him, was what the Father had planned for him to do. And again here, it seems that maybe not as drastically, but he is again doing that. And so before, before Peter can begin to build, the one who laid the plans, the one who, who saw fit to send his son and crush him, he shows up too, and he begins to speak, and he gives us the final word. He gives us the final assurance of who it is that is standing before these men. We've seen the glory of Christ. We've seen the folly of the disciples. And then thirdly and finally, we see the word of God. The word of God, and you see it there in verse 34. It says, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now friends, it's, it's hard for us to imagine, but try to put yourself in the position of Peter, James, and John in that moment. When that cloud came down, they would have known immediately what this was. This was the glory of Almighty God, right? This was the glory that Moses saw at Mount Sinai. That this was the glory that descended on the tabernacle, that descended on the temple, that Ezekiel saw leaving the temple at the time of the exodus, at the time of the exile, not exodus. This was God and all of his consuming fire coming down there among them. Can you imagine the fear, the the awe, the, the wondering they experienced in that moment? But then God speaks. And you remember what happens when he speaks at Mount Sinai. The people say, Moses, you got to go talk to this guy because we can't handle it. We can't handle his presence. We can't handle his words. You got to go up the mountain and leave us here because we cannot, we can't do it. So think about what they are experiencing when God Almighty speaks to them. And don't miss what he says there in verse 35. He says, this is my son. That son from Psalm 110, who is the king, right? Who is the king? This is my chosen one from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah talks about the chosen one who is to come, that that suffering servant who would give his life for his people. And This is my prophet. Listen to him. This is God in the flesh. All of his glory right here. Listen to him here, without a doubt, God the Father, He confirms the identity and the authority of Jesus, the Son of God, headed for a cross, but also for glory. And so everyone better take heed. Everyone better listen to what He has to say. Now we said, the question before us from the beginning was, is He worth it? Given all we've seen, given all He demands, is he worth it Well friends if we have ears to hear and if we have have eyes to see I think we have gotten our answer fairly clearly haven't we Here on this mountain of transfiguration we have seen clearly and without a doubt the identity of the one who demands so much of our lives He's not just the man down the street He's not just someone we would be willing to give our lives to. A spiritual mentor, a movie star, a politician, somebody like that. No, here in the flesh is none other than the second person of the Godhead. Here's the second person of the Trinity and here he is in his glory. Glory that was at creation. Here he is, the one who Isaiah saw in the temple. This is him. Here he is in all of his glory that he will have for all of eternity. And here he is in the flesh. This is the one who upholds the universe with his power. Here is the king. Friends, let me ask you, who else has the right to demand anything of your life more than him? The answer is no one. Not even yourselves. But again, as we said last week, if this was all we knew, then yes, we would have to answer. He's worth it. We would have to answer yes His demands are what we must do because He is this God. But friends, that's not all we know. That's not all He has given us. What else has He said? He's not only this God in the flesh, but He's also the one who is greater than Moses, the greater Redeemer who is bringing the second Exodus, the greater Exodus, who is going to free us from the bondage of sin and guilt, who is going to shed His blood and put it over our doorpost as it was so that the angel of death would pass over you and I. Here is the Lamb of God sacrificed on our behalf. That's what Moses and Elijah, that's what they come to talk about. And so again, I ask you, is he worth it? The answer is yes. If he is this God and who has loved you like this? The answer is no one. You don't love you like this. And look, Like Terrell Owens, we love us some us. We love ourselves. But he loves you more. He loves you with an infinite love, a love that will never fail. But again, friends, if that was all we knew, then that would be enough. He's God. He is the Savior. If that was all we knew, that would be enough. But that's still not all he's given us. What is the one thing that I have left out of our study of this passage? Who is it that stands with him? It's Moses. It's Elijah. Moses, who had died at least a thousand years before. Elijah, who had died at least 700 years ago, maybe more than that. But what's the reality? Are they lost? Are they undone? Are they in purgatory somewhere, just hanging out? No, they have been kept. They have been kept for all of those years, and they have been kept in His glory. That's what it says, that they appear in Christ's glory. Friends, this is the truth of what awaits every single one of us who are resting in Christ. We have Him, His great glory, but He also has promised in a grace that we cannot begin to understand to let us share His own. To give us his glory as well one day we will stand as Moses and Elijah stand stood on this mountain we will stand with him and his glory will shine over us his glory will shine in us because we will truly and completely be united with him for all of eternity friends this is the result of a life sacrificed to Christ is he worth it Is he worth the sacrifice? Is he worth a lifetime of trials and difficulties? The answer is yes. Yes, he is worth it. Because no one is greater than he is. No one will love you like he loves you. And no one can get you to eternity. No one can get you to glory other than him. And so, will you today, you give your life wholly and completely to this Jesus? Will you live for his glory, knowing that it is his glory that awaits you when we get there? Yes, it will be costly, but friends, it's worth it. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider that truth, uh, Lord, the reality is, is though we see your great benefits, though we've seen all that you have done for us, Our hearts are still sinful. Our hearts still want to go their own way. And so, Lord, we need you to work in us. Uh, We need you to give us this desire. We need you to give us this this, uh, picture of the the beauty of Jesus so that everything else will fade into the background and our lives will be lived with a love of this great Christ. Uh, Lord, we praise you today that though we fail, Uh, Though we will never do this right this side of heaven, Jesus has has loved you, loved the Father in this way. He has loved us in this way, and so today we have hope. We can come to you and confess our sins. Know that you are faithful to forgive us, but also, Lord, we have our great motivation. We see why it is that we are to live this way, and it's because Jesus has loved us the way that he has. And so, Lord, just give us a taste over and over and over again of that all-consuming love.